0: Hey everyone, welcome to the <laughs> second ever episode of Punch Card Investing. And for those of you who missed last week's episode, we're trying to do this weekly sort of live stream conversation about value investing. And in the first half of every episode, we'll have a predetermined topic that one of us will pick and we'll have a conversation about that. And then for the latter half or so, we'll open it up for questions. And if you guys want to get involved in the conversation, we can do that and, and uh, just talk about all things value investing. Um Oh, and before I move on any further, be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, because that would help us out a lot. And check out the um, Discord as well, so you guys can get involved there. Um, It's a free Discord. Feel free to join that. The link is in the description. We'd be happy to see you over there as well. But for this episode, uh, last, last time we talked about our best current investment ideas. This time we want to talk about our favorite investors, who often are a source of investment ideas and inspiration and different philosophies to go off of. And this one was brought to us by our very own Investing with Frank. So I'll let him start out with it. And uh, who is your favorite investor, Frank?
1: All right. I'll just open it with saying that I don't think any of us are going to cover Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger. I'm not sure. Maybe Tom <laughs> will. He did touch on it. But I'm going with Chuck Ackray today. So Chuck Ackray is hes a long-term investor with a pretty concentrated portfolio. I'll jump into his portfolio uh, shortly. But he looks for what he calls compounding machines. So I actually just put a video on my YouTube channel this morning as well, talking about these compounding machines. He's looking for three things in the businesses. So a quality business, which is pretty hard to define what he calls a quality business. But from what I've heard, he's looking for like high returns on equity, sustainable competitive advantages, um, and a few other things. But I'm sure you can hear him talk about that. Then he wants the second thing is quality management team, which I guess is one of my main priorities when I'm investing as well. Um, The one quote I like that he said about management is he wants management team that treats the shareholders like owners, which I found pretty cool. And then the last thing he wants is a business that can reinvest um, continuously into the future. So high returns on invested capital that um, can be sustainable for the long term which I guess ties in with a competitive advantage as well. I'll just jump into his portfolio. So I'll read some of his biggest positions out. Um, Fairly concentrated into MasterCard, which is his biggest position, and that's 13% of the portfolio. He also owns Visa, which is about 8% of the portfolio. So that's just over 20% into payments companies, which I found pretty cool. His second biggest position is Moody's Corp, which I don't know too much about. I'm not sure if any of you guys do. And he also has American Tower Corp at 10% as well. They're his biggest positions, and he has a lot of other smaller positions at about 4 and 5% of the portfolio. But half the portfolio is in those four positions. But, yeah, that's Chuck Ackrey, and that's probably my favorite investor at the moment.
2: Cool. What's, um, what's Chuck Ackrey's... Um Background and performance track record, like do you know, him?
1: Yeah, so I know since two thousand and nine, I think two thousand eight or, or nine, he ran the fund, um, and it's about an eighteen percent return. So S and P mm-hmm. five hundred over that time period is around thirteen or fourteen percent. So he's outperformed the market since running the fund. And I just read this morning. I was just um, looking up some more things about him, and I think he might have just left um, the fund late last year. So I'm not sure if he'll continue running Acre Focus Fund. But um, yeah, so far the track record is majority his, and it's about 17%,
3: 18%. Yeah, cool. I'll jump in. So I, I think four or five years ago I, I saw a talk from, from Monish, and he was referring to Moody's as one of these companies that, you know, a great business that an idiot can run. So, mm. you know, had, had nothing but awesome things to, to say about Moody's. Um, I also noticed, and this is kind of under the radar, but uh, Chuck Aker initiated a position recently in Topicus. Um, I don't know if, you know, it's Constellation not. That, yeah. he, he also owns Constellation, right? So that might have been from the spin uh, rather than him just buying shares in the open market. Yeah.
2: Interesting. I, I feel like Monish Pabrai actually said almost the same thing about American Tower that you just... Said about Moody's, Brad. So there might be a there might be a couple of couple of sort of no brainer
1: anyone can run type companies in there. Bit of a theme there. Does anyone know Mm -hmm. what Moody's actually does? I haven't really looked into it too much. They're They're a a, a rating industry, credit rating rating agency. agency. Okay. Because I heard him talking about it with his one of his partners, uh, a younger guy who I'm assuming is going to be taking over the fund now if he did step down. But um, originally Chuck didn't want anything to do with Moody's after the. The 2008 crash, 2008, yeah. yeah. And he wanted nothing to do with it. He thought management were dodgy because they were providing um, some of those loans out, I guess. But then after, I think in 2010 is when they entered it, he went and sat in on an interview with management team and invested that afternoon. Hmm. So once he made um, them face-to-face, which is one thing, I guess, we can never hmm. do but um it sounds like you got sold <laughs> <Almost>. <laughs> Possibly. but I, I think it's been a pretty good return over that time period. i'm not sure what exactly it's been i'll have yeah a look.
2: interesting just just one other thing on moody's i think um it was guy spear who is not the person i'm talking about today but just since we're talking about it i think um guy spear really likes the moody's business and may even be a small shareholder and he basically came up with this sort of mental model i don't know if he came up with it but he certainly implemented it of let's identify basically the moody's business but in other um sort of parts of the world and i think that's what led to his crystal investment so crystal was like a huge home run multi-bagger that he sold after it had done that already for him and it's gone on to do that like again and again and again Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it'd be some huge proportion of his fund if he'd kept holding it but i think um that's an interesting sort of philosophy that that I picked up. That's just something that yeah. came to mind when, when you mentioned Moody's. You know,
4: yeah, there's another nice Indian to... investor. Sorry.
1: Sorry, Moody's compounded yeah. in over the past 10 years at 23%. So nice. definitely a good position to be in. Mm-hmm.
4: Is that all? So there's another Indian investor <laughs> who got into Crystal at the same time as Guy Spear, and mm-hmm. he's still holding it. So his name is Rakesh Jindranwala. Mm-hmm.
3: You yeah. did a video on him, didn't you, Karin? Uh No, not yet. Okay. Some, okay. Some, some.
2: yeah, do you want to throw up crystal stock chart, Jack? Just so the the people know what we're talking about, because that's um that's been an insane return. It's C R I S I L is the spelling. I it. Yeah, get, try to get somewhere. it over
3: like twenty years or something. I think uh, Spear bought in in like two thousand three or something.
2: Yeah. 2002 and so, 2002. Yeah. yeah sold after like a triple or something right and it's yep i yep. guess we'll see in a sec what it's actually done but um, it would have been bigger biggest than his mistakes.
4: entire fund
3: i think yeah his entire fund yeah so yeah there
2: you go so guy Sphere might have gone like 2003 to i'm just we'll guessing a bit here but 2003 no, to 2007 uh, yeah. he probably got
0: or something a nice little uh 5000 something, like something percent ish
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah all. that'd be nice it is over go. 20 <laughs> years though it's kind of a
0: while but still pretty phenomenal. That's crazy. Jack, would you not take that over 20 years? Would you say no to that? (laughs) No, no. Oh, absolutely.
2: (laughs) 20 years is far too long. (laughs) No. Yeah.
0: I I need I need a thousand percent next week. There's plenty of those recommendations all over the internet.
2: Yeah. Give us, give us GameStop 2.0, Karan.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Karan's the wizard here. (laughs) Yeah. You tell me, Karan. (laughs) Karan, who's your favorite investor? So the
4: investor I want to talk about was someone who we actually all follow. So the founder of Value Investors Club. And uh, he's Mm -hmm. also been very gracious in sharing his magic formula investing formula website. And um, what else? Um, Yeah, so he thinks you can be a stock market genius, which is (laughs) great. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm talking about Joel Greenblatt here. And uh, I'm pretty sure everyone is already familiar with him and his track record.
3: Yeah? Yep. Yep. Yep.
4: Yeah. So he started and I think his fund around 85, was it? I think. Some, something and like And then that. he closed something in 94. In yeah. He was compounding at like 50% per year before fees. So eventually the fund got too large and he's like, I just have to close this down and... I'm done with it, so I think that's a good problem to have. uh, For sure. Yeah, one of my favorite things about him is that he actually has a heart of a teacher. So through his books, I mean, I feel like he's he's helped out so many retail investors, and uh, I think I think that's what I admire most about him.
3: Yeah. Well, he was a teacher too, right?
0: Yeah,
4: as uh, um, like at times he would teach at
0: Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. He was an
4: adjunct professor. Yeah.
0: He is really good at distilling
3: uh,
0: investing ideas down into pretty easier to follow sort of lessons Um, like magic formula investing is very easy to understand. um, And it's kind of a good sort of intro into value investing among his other work as well. He's very versatile
4: as an investor. Also, I mean, he uses options, special situations, all sorts of things, but the underlying philosophy is always based in value investing, right? You know, buy something below its intrinsic value, sell or around intrinsic value
2: yeah so he he sort of had kind of like two phases in his career right he was the you can be a stock market genius too type investor which is more special situations options often he was interested in the less sexy side of a spin-off for example he'd be looking at the company that's left with all this debt and no one wants to know about but he'd be reading the filings and actually finding some of the stuff kind of interesting and then he's kind of transition to more of a quantitative type investment approach right
4: I mean I don't think he prefers to be called a quant per Mm -hmm. se but but yeah I mean it was driven by some quantitative approaches but at the end of the day I mean he was just basically you know going long the stocks that he felt were undervalued and going short the stocks that you know he thought were overvalued
1: he's definitely gone to a lot more diversified type portfolio than his earlier days and I don't know if that reflects the returns. I don't know how his returns have been um, post-writing those books, really. But I think roughly his strategy these days is he has about 300 positions, most of them being long, like Krinder said, and then a few short positions overlaying most of that as a bit of a hedge too.
0: It looks like he's just trying to get like a slight sort of delta to the broader market returns, but is still relying heavily on just typical market returns, which it's probably more defensive um, which you know it, every strategy is going to be a little bit different and i guess as your portfolio grows it'll tend to get more defensive i would imagine just cuz it's harder to find those like deep value plays uh, at scale
1: uh, that that's think, so many. go
0: ahead
1: i think most investors do that like mm-hmm. the larger their fund becomes the more money they have the more safe they have to play it and usually that turns into diversification buffett probably is the only person that didn't diversify when he got a lot bigger so it's still pretty diversified
0: though like broadly speaking but yeah not not to the level of like a dalio or something or it's just yeah and his big positions are
1: concentrated he has a lot of positions but most of it's in apple so like, that's
0: true yeah it's top heavy for sure
1: yeah you know it's interesting uh
3: Li Lu obviously is managing quite a, a large amount of money i think it's like 13 or 14 billion and from what I can tell, I mean, we can only see his U.S. holdings, but I, I don't think he's gone that route of, you know, massive diversification. He's still pretty concentrated. Again, we can't see his whole portfolio, but that's my impression.
1: I think it, he only has about five or six positions that we know about.
3: 13F-wise, yeah. I think is he, he also Facebook? has. He is. He, he cut his Facebook
1: position. In the fourth quarter, yeah. Just and trying I, to look it up on ticker now to see what I can find. If there's any foreign positions on there or not.
0: And he recently added Apple, right? And then, yep. Which was a little strange, con- yep. all things considered. Pinduoduo, yep, right. He's been going into larger tech, yeah. Yep. I I I, I know, still don't know how I feel about Apple. Um, like, obviously it's a great business, but just as like a longer term compounder, because it's already just so humongous. Y- you always wonder, like, when's it going to slow down more or what's going on? Like, is this price worth it, even with a business as strong as Apple's? Um That's why that that Lilou, uh, move just seems so uh out of the ordinary for s- someone like him, who, who considers himself a deep value type investor.
3: Mm. Yep. He does have a huge BYD position as well. I think I'm pretty sure that's his largest position. BYD. Yeah,
4: he introduced yeah. Buffett and Mongo to BYD, right? I think.
3: Yeah.
4: yeah,
2: yeah, and it's grown to be enough. Um, I you probably saw me drop off there, I didn't catch all of that um discussion, but that that's grown to be one of um. Buffett's larger positions now like it turned up in his annual letter this year for the first time and he hasn't hasn't put an extra cent in it for since like what 2012 or something roughly so Uh that's been a home run 2009 yeah oh there you go at the bottom
0: (laughs) what about you Tom who's your favorite investor
2: uh man, there's so many. It's hard to pick. I, I'm going to be the least obscure. I think of all these um, favorite <laughs> investor pitches because I'm just going to go Monash Fry, which um, everyone it's watching insane. probably expected me, expected me to say that or Buffett. But I mean, he's been he's probably the one who has a strategy that most closely mirrors my own. I think is, is probably why I'm saying that. So he's he's someone that I've found has just been able to distill what some people can make. Yeah, you know, just. Pers- some people make investing out to be a really complicated topic and Monish Pabrai sort of distills it down into some pretty basic ideas. And that's just something I've related to. Like I've read the Dan- the Dando investor a couple of times now reread it again this year. And it's a lot of the things that Pabrai said, even though he's had a bit of a change in investment philosophy this year, just make, a huge amount of sense to me. So um he's he my favorite investor. I even uh, I even grew a mustache in his honor last November, right? So it's <laughs> for me to go past him. My, the,
0: the, that was an excellent Movember uh, you, you raised you raised quite a bit of money for, for charity back then uh in November. That was pretty awesome. Um and, yeah, I think you had one video where you're like uh I was walking down the street and someone approached me and asked him, hey, are you Monshwear? <laughs> I love I love yeah. that. <laughs> that was that so was excellent. Great.
2: Yeah, it's so, so a Brian. safe one. Yeah, it's a safe one. But um, yeah, I think he's top the list.
0: I don't think anyone's going to argue.
1: <laughs> he's definitely one of, if not my favorite investor as well. I just tried to pick something outside the box. But Monish is someone I follow more closely than probably any other investor, I think.
4: Yeah. So who's bidding on the lunch?
2: I think we, we're we all teaming up, aren't we? <laughs> we have a fund, the lunch fund.
1: <laughs> and you might have to pay for us with that GameStop money.
0: Yeah, Karan, Karan, Karan's our, our leader. He's the fund manager.
2: I thought this is why we, we've started this channel and trying to get it to, is, to it, a 1,000 subscribers to fund the fund the Pabrai lunch. For this lunch, is man.
3: all just a rehearsal for how we're going to ask questions <laughs> yeah,
0: to, to Everyone in the it's chat, okay. let us know how we're doing in our, in our prep for this lunch. Uh, it, it, and we need your help, like really fine-tuning things. So um, smash the like button if you think we're doing a good job. Um,
2: yeah, so, and su- subscribe, subscribe, share with your friends, send it to your mom. You know, we need to up the views mm. and get the ad revenue coming in for this, and, for this next auction.
0: Send it because he's active on social media yes. so maybe because uh, t- tom you got the retweet of karan's mug <laughs> the brad's uh, yeah, so had cool. a few as well i think <laughs> yeah yeah he, he he's keeping an eye on us i think
3: <laughs> he's generous <laughs> with him. his retweets uh, which it, i think right. he's in
1: the chat right now monish <laughs> might be watching
3: yeah
0: <laughs> this, this is for everyone who, uh, who is, hasn't seen it on karan's channel but he he, he sent us all these awesome mugs see the it's a a it's sheet like a she it myself <laughs> with the uh, with the Monish uh, um, mustache. Shameless cloners, yeah. fabulous design. <laughs> thank you. And then uh, Monish um, retweeted that when Tom posted a picture of it, so That's he's right. seen it and approves, which is amazing. L- life's ja- over, we're good.
3: <laughs> Jack, tell us about the Grave Dancer.
0: Uh yes. I uh, so I'm more of a real estate guy myself. Mm-hmm. So I ha- I was like trying to think of. Who like my idolized investor are and and like like Tommy said, there's so many to choose from. Um, But I'm I'm going with Sam Zell um, since he uh, we had our conversation a lot about cash and liquidity last last time, Mm -hmm. and he's he's probably someone you can learn so much about the value of having cash available in a crisis or even not in a crisis, just having the flexibility to go in and and really do some otherwise fairly risky things to deals um, because you can get them at such a good price when no one else has liquidity. Um, so there, there is tremendous value to having cash, even in an inflationary environment, for example. He, he made a ton of money in the 70s during stagflation with real estate, since he was one of the few guys who had a ton of cash available to go in, buy these properties with fixed rate debt, and then ride the inflation wave to, to huge gains. Um, whereas other people who didn't have enough money at the time were out. So He's got a lot of great lessons beyond that, of course, but that's kind of the central theme that he, that he often goes by. And Brad, like you were saying, the Grave Dancer is the nickname he's earned since he often will uh, sort of hang around distressed deals, looking looking for ways to to that he could um, restructure a deal or do something to, to make it better. But since he really takes the value investing approach and applies it super heavily to real estate. Um, and then he's trying to get things below cost, below their replacement cost. So, so the cost to actually build the building, that's his general approach to real estate investing. And it's paid off handsomely for him now and does a fair bit of stock investing too. He's got a SPAC right now, for example. Um, so that's, that's my, uh, that's my two cents on Sam Zell. Plus he's a, he's a very entertaining speaker. Uh, when he, when he does speak, he's got a great book as well. Uh, am I being too subtle, which, uh, got on my desk right here. This one is a great one. I highly recommend
2: Yeah, cool. Has Sam Zell ever invested or made big bets outside of real estate or is just that's purely been his focus?
0: That's his like that's his main niche. Um, But let's see, he bought uh, uh, the not the Tribune. He bought a huge newspaper a long time ago. Charlie Munger-esque, I suppose. um, And then turned that around. He bought a bunch of radio companies back in, like, I think the 90s or the 2000s. Um, He's trying to get a distribution tech firm right now with his SPAC. Um. So, so a variety of holdings, but yeah, his bread, bread and butter has been um, real estate mainly. He, he sort of pioneered the office reit, uh, which, which wasn't really a thing before he started doing it a, a few decades back, um, and, and had a ton of success with it.
2: Yeah. How How does he always end up with so much cash at the right times? What, what's he doing? Is he just he, is he, he is he a hardcore market timer trying to sell? Uh, kind of.
0: Kind of. He has a he has a hair trigger to sell is what it kind of seems like. And it's worked out very well. Uh, his his most famous deal was when he sold off Equity Office, which was this huge office portfolio. He sold it to ba- BlackRock in like 2007 or 2006, right before the crash and and made out like a bandit. <laughs> so, and then uh, he used that to go buy things like Equity Commonwealth, which is the company that that I invested in, Karan's invested in as well, sitting on a ton of cash right now, waiting patiently for that deal. Um, basically, he he doesn't, it's not so much market timing, but he'll, he'll look at the cost to actually build the property, for example. And if he gets an offer, he can't refuse. He's going to take it. Um, he's not, he's not hesitating to to take a deal when it's, uh, when he can sell it and potentially wait for a better opportunity when, when there is a crash or when there's some distress deal that he can take advantage of. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't call him a market timer, but that's kind of how it's ended up working for him in when he happens to sell his deals. Um, it's not like he was predicting the 2008 crash when he did that, but he said that he got an offer he couldn't refuse, which makes sense since things got so euphoric. He doesn't get caught up in the euphoria. Is probably the best answer.
3: What What is uh, Sam Zell's current position on the office space? That That environment is he pretty firm on that, or is he branching out into other sectors? What's What's
2: he doing?
0: He he's uh he's not super stubborn, but yes, he he is bullish on office long term, even downtown office, which has obviously been hit hard this year. Well, revenue wise, it's been fine, but a lot of offices, especially in the U.S., are still like largely empty downtown, and uh, and he has major concerns that there's been a huge oversupply of office buildings in the last twenty to thirty years. Um, so he he has concerns there, and he's looking at other areas in real estate as well. The only one he's been really out against has been retail. He calls it a falling knife. Um, so he's trying to stay away from that. Um, but he is not net bearish on office. My guess is he's waiting for something to happen to the office market so he can get in, get those below replacement cost uh, cost deals. Since he really does believe that working from home on a broad scale isn't super effective. He's he's very much into the so- the social environment of working because uh, that's how he's run his companies. So. He is pretty bullish on office, uh, generally speaking. But he's not going to overpay for office. It is uh, that's his general approach. Right.
2: Mm. Well, there goes that merger idea you had, Karan.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I
4: even uh, sent them a letter. I was like, "Hey, you should totally consider
0: this." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kar- Karan is like, hey, hello, I own seven hundred private islands in this part of the world. Can you please uh, listen to my uh, my thoughts?" <laughs> no, nope.
4: wouldn't it be perfect? Like, Equity Commonwealth has cash. Seritage needs cash. They have property that is below replacement costs. I mean, it's makes sense for them it,
0: to merge, I think. It, makes, it, it definitely could work well. And uh, in, in case you guys missed that, um, Surge Growth Properties is uh, heavily indebted, has a lot of retail properties, but is trying to do a lot of retrofitting to, to uh, change the properties, make them not retail or otherwise better, um, and, and turn around the portfolio. Meanwhile, Equity Commonwealth, Sam Zell's REIT, has tons of cash, like a couple properties, a couple office properties, but way more cash than anything else.
4: 3.4 billion
0: now. Yeah. yeah, and it's just sitting there and, and he's he's waiting patiently. And if, perhaps if those two companies merged, you'd have this great synergy and, and you'd get this influx of cash that Seritage could use to pay down a bunch of debt that they have and um, it, it's a thought. And I, and I think it's not a bad idea by any means. You see, they are burning cash. They have a lot of cash. It, it works perfectly. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. Yes, <laughs> add fuel to the fire.
3: <laughs> hey, Jack, I think Sam Zell is in Chicago. You got to go find him and knock on his door or something, I, man. Hey, I,
0: I can't. I thought I was going to come close. Um, I uh, so I'm in this charity group, and in, in this it's this big sort of real estate networking sort of charity group in Chicago called the Eisenberg Foundation. And he recently gave a talk, uh, but it was pre-recorded. So I was like, ah, wow. I thought I thought I was going to be able to, to like ask a question or something, but. Um, came close, came close. <laughs> um, some, Sometime soon. I, I know some of the people who were able to connect with them, So I, I'm, I'm closer than I think, I believe, yeah. but we'll see.
3: <laughs> one degree of separation. <laughs>
0: yeah, maybe more than one, but uh, two or three. But we'll see. <laughs> um, anyways, enough about Sam we Zell. Need
2: to, we need to get him on the stream. If oh, we had a l- sixth person, that, oh. that would work really well with the video tiles we've yeah. got yeah. going on here.
0: Yeah, if anyone has a plug... With, um, or if anyone has an in with Sam Zell or Monish Prabhai, uh, just let us know <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll get them on here. They can do whatever okay. they want. And then who, who hasn't gone? Um, I, Brad, yeah, Brad, I think. Brad, who's your favorite investor?
3: So I, I don't know that he's my favorite investor. I like that he kind of flies below the radar. He's only managing $9 million as of last month, and that's Andrew Rosenbloom uh, with Banzai Partners. I just listened uh, to an interview with Andrew Rosenblum today. Uh, I sent you a link, Jack. It was with Good Investing Talks, uh, and it, it was it was phenomenal. So he goes a lot of different places in the interview, but he was asked why Bonsai Partners. How does a bonsai tree represent what you're trying to do as an investment firm? And his answer was, "Well, you know, it, it really takes years." to kind of shape this bonsai into something beautiful, something magnificent. And so it's a, you know, it's, it's a nice analogy for investing, what it takes to really grow, uh, you know, an amazing portfolio of, of businesses over the long run. And he even said, you know, bonsai trees, they usually don't reach their, you know, zenith until after the master has passed away. And so is this kind of beautiful analogy there. Um, And I came across Andrew researching Micron technology. So Bonsai bought Micron, I think it was early 2019. And in the quarterly letter, which, you know, uh, Andrew puts out a letter each quarter that's available to the public, which is awesome. Um, Here's one of the letters. Uh, he did like a six or seven page write-up of Micron. I just thought this is really dialed in. I thought it was a very high quality write-up. So I've been reading his letters ever since his biggest position is red bubble, which Frank mentioned. Uh, and actually in that talk that Jack just shared, um, he goes pretty in depth into Redbubble. Um, it's a pretty fascinating story. So Uh, The unfortunate thing is we can't see for sure what Andrew uh, holds each quarter because he's not required to submit those 13F filings. Um, So it's possible when he puts out these letters, he's not sharing everything, especially if he's still buying into a position. Um, But I, I resonate with the way he thinks as an investor, and I'm excited to kind of grow alongside him and really pay attention to what he's doing each quarter. Frank, do you have anything to add? I know you've been digging into him as well.
1: So I'm actually a shareholder of Redbubble as of the past week or so. And I originally came across it because of Andrew Rosenblum. So a friend of mine shared his returns with me just because he was one of these investors with ridiculous returns. Jack it up just before, it's about 100%. And you'll answer something ridiculous
3: over what two or three years. So it's, it's uh, over three
1: years. So yeah, a short time right. period. And most of those returns actually came from Redbubble. Right. So I'm um, well and truly late to the party compared to when Andrew Rosenblum came across it. And it's an Australian company. He's in America or Canada, maybe. I think he's, I think he's in America. California.
3: Same same yeah, place cool. as I am.
1: Yep. Um. But yeah, super interesting dude. Fairly young. I don't know how old he is, but he looks and seems pretty young. <laughs> And, um, yeah, Yeah. I think it's a good one to follow for the very long term because he's a super smart guy, really well-spoken. His strategy aligns with me pretty well. Um, Super nerdy type guy, like really, really almost autistically smart. So, yeah, I really like him.
3: Yeah, it was interesting, too. He he shared that when he started out with a firm in Boston, he was the only guy responsible for finding shorts in that firm. And he mentioned, you know, after a while, he started to see that when you're going short a company, uh, each additional ten percent you you win, you're actually getting less and less. So it's it's like anti-compounding is is what he described in that talk that I shared. Um, so it was it was interesting to kind of see it that way.
0: And I never even would have thought of that, but I guess that makes sense. Yeah, it's the law of big numbers reversed, <laughs> right? So
3: yeah, guy, a guy to check out for any of you who who haven't. So now you've heard our fund you, size, you, <clears throat> uh, nine, nine point two million as of last year. It's really that small. Yep, wow. Yeah, I looked it up on advisor info. Those, uh,
0: those small funds can be a, a great source of inspiration
1: because yep. it's a lot of overlooked stuff often. So, mm-hmm. and, and it's a one man show, it's just him. He said it's he's the only employee. Yeah. So,
0: and that, that's mm. like, um, what. Buffett and Munger are always kind of like, or really all larger value investors tend to be like, oh yeah, if I was running a million dollar firm, I'd be able to double it in like a couple of years. And like, <laughs> they're, they're always just kind of write it off. Like, yeah, I could handle a small fund, no problem. And, and then you see examples like this, you're like, oh, I guess there's some, some merit to that. Just when it gets to that huge scale, like we were talking about earlier, it just becomes a lot harder to scale those really good investment ideas. Um, and anyways, right about the halfway mark, so if you guys have questions, start queuing them up in the, um, in the chat and, and we can start answering some of your questions. Well,
3: I have a question related to what you just said, Jack. So mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear from you guys. You know, is there a, a certain threshold AUM that you look for when, when you're, you're considering cloning investors you know, over which you start to see uh, diminishing returns because of
1: size? Do you have a, an idea about where that threshold is? I'll jump in quickly on that one. I look for the the smaller the better. So I'm looking for like these mostly people on Twitter that run small amounts of money, some of them <laughs> private investors, some of them small fund managers. But a lot of guys like, I don't know, Elliot Turner is another one that I like, Rosenbaum, like we mentioned. Um, there's lots of guys on there and I'm more interested in the companies they're talking about. They're yeah. usually not as recognized by the market, so more likely to find undervalued companies in my opinion. That's just what I like.
3: Now I want to follow that up with are these dollar bills for fifty cents or thirty cents that they're looking for, or are they also these kind of long term compounders? What are you
1: seeing um well, Elliot Turner, the one I talked about, he's definitely a more long term compounder, yeah pays up for a lot of businesses from what I've seen. I don't mm-hmm. think he would admit that he pays up, but the positions that I see he holds they're certainly not deep value positions of any kind right um, but yeah there's other guys on there have more deep value type portfolios like someone like Mitchell Michael Michael Mitchell other way around I'm like Mitchell yeah <laughs> two two first names um he runs like a concentrated deep value approach a lot of strange positions but um another one that I follow as well
3: yeah Elliot Turner uh says he's a GARP investor so so there you go yeah.
1: sounds about right
0: I, I don't think I necessarily discriminate based on size but I think to what frank was saying is like it's more likely that you're probably going to find better ideas from smaller investors or at least whether it be compounders or the 50 cent dollar bills often you're not going to see large more institutional hedge funds or whatever investing in cigar butt type things um or 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 some of those uh more niche value plays um so i i don't say i, I i'm not doing a blind cloning approach outside of the Magic Formula portfolio, of course, which is yeah. like a, a little experiment thing I'm doing on my channel, but like as, for my main portfolio, I, I, I'm pretty indiscriminatory.
1: So mm-hmm. I think yeah. I run a, a little bit of a, sorry, Tom, a little bit of a different strategy. So I think one of the best advantages retail investors have is to invest in illiquid positions and these large fund managers can't buy illiquid positions, so... <laughs> That's why I like smaller guys, because I want to find those type of companies. That suits me better anyway.
0: Size is is not important, but (laughs) (laughs) anyways. (laughs) There's there's other things to life,
3: all right? I knew (laughs) knew someone was going to sneak that in.
0: (laughs) I I didn't see it coming, but I should have. (laughs) What a shame.
2: (laughs) Um, I was was just going to say, I don't really have any hard and fast rules on size I think I agree with the general principle that if you can find people smaller then you're more likely to find stuff that's kind of interesting and the wider investment community hasn't picked up yet I guess the downside is they're probably smaller because they haven't got their spectacular track records of 20% a year for a very long time so there's that element and then I think, I mean, even with people like Buffett, uh, you've got to say that most of the time when he's buying a new position, it's perhaps not as interesting as a position he might have been added when he was, you know, running his partnership in the 50s or something. But, you know, if you see him take a big swing at Apple and put like a hundred, like $30 billion into it or whatever it was when he first, uh, you know, got into that position, that's pretty interesting. And the other thing with a, a place like Berkshire is, um one of the things that i've probably been guilty of not looking at but i think i want to start doing a little bit more is paying a bit more attention to the smaller positions because you have you know ted and todd for example running sort of roughly 10 billion or so kind of dollar portfolios within berkshire so sometimes you can sort of see smaller positions come up even within the larger fund that said it's it's hard to gauge conviction when they're like these little small positions, but I think it's kind of interesting to at least at least give those some of those ideas the time of day.
3: And there's no way to know for sure if it's them who's buying, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, uh, yeah it's pretty obvious if it's Buffett sometimes, but yeah, hard, right. hard for the the small ones.
0: And another big thing with with the, something like Berkshire is they're more akin to like a bank in that they can they can do some pretty tremendous deals that that the average person could not do like uh, when they bought all of, uh, I think what it was dominion energies, like th- that portion of their portfolio, like you and I can't do that. We can't like siphon a part of a business off, um, but they can. Mm. So that that's like a unique thing that, that um, the average investor couldn't really do, but a smaller fund's not going to do that either. So you're not going to have that sort of, I don't want to call it noise, but you know, it's a, it's a different sort of approach when you get to that scale.
2: So real yeah, quick, and, Frank, and we can't... Can... sorry, you got Brad. Frank, I just
3: looked up Elliot Turner's fund, $107 million under management. So not small. It looks like they're just going to have to start filing their, their 13 Fs. Oh, that's
1: pretty cool. That'd be it's interesting good for to us. follow that. <laughs> because I only hear about positions okay. he talks about on his podcast and there a couple of write-ups he does. So that'll be handy.
3: Yeah. Go ahead, Tom
1: uh i've blanked on what i was gonna say oh yeah the the other thing i was
2: gonna say is the other the other thing that berkshire does which we can't is like issue debt at zero percent interest right. rates in japan and europe right. and all this stuff which is it, it changes which is pretty game. interesting yeah I, I guess the thing we can do is buy berkshire but but it's hard yeah. to get in on one of those specific you know parts of berkshire that's really interesting
0: right i i, I own berkshire as a decent portion of my portfolio kind of just I i don't want to it's kind of like a I don't want to say defensive because it just has so much cash, but a lot of my positions i found that I've put a decent amount of money into have a lot of cash. So it's like, I don't want to call it a cash equivalent because it's definitely not, but it's like, I like having that sort of built in liquidity, especially during this frothy time. So if things, if there's some opportunity that arises, they can come in. It's like same thing with Berkshire, what they did with bank of America back in the crisis. That was huge, which if they didn't have all that cash, they wouldn't have been able to do get their nice, 10% 10% preferred dividend or whatever and a and a huge chunk of the business. Like that, that's something that they can leverage because of their size that a normal fund and a normal or smaller fund couldn't really do.
4: Hmm. That was Goldman, right. Wasn't
0: or am I wrong? I'm pretty sure it was B of A, but I I think he did something with Goldman as well. Am I mixing that up?
3: Anyone Perhaps. correct me?
0: <laughs> Maybe whatever it is.
2: I do know he did get sent an email by AIG. I'm pretty sure it was AIG that he didn't see till like a year later, They're asking for money in the midst of the financial crisis because he couldn't figure out how to use his cell phone or something. he asked them to fax it, and they never sent him a fax. They sent him some mobile message of some sort that he couldn't figure out. That's kind of hilarious.
3: <laughs> oh.
2: Yeah, he says he would have never done the deal anyway, but that's just, that's classic like Granddad Buffett, isn't it?
3: Sandeep says it was definitely B of A. All right. Thank you, Sandeep. <laughs> I got so, a little nervous there. <laughs> so I've got a question. Uh, Monish Pabrai talks about putting, you know, having one to three positions in his personal account. What, what do you guys make of that? Is, is that insane? Or obviously he's he's done well with it, but. I mean, he says a lot of the time there's just one position.
1: Mm. What What are your thoughts? I, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it personally, no, me but neither. the best returns of all time are people that, like Monish talks about this, people that own the business. They invested in that just one business, like Amazon and Jeff Bezos. Um, well, Buffett's a bad example, but kind of with Berkshire Hathaway. All the biggest returns come from that one single concentrated position in your own business. So in that sense, that doesn't sound risky by just owning a large business. But when it's in a portfolio, it sounds <laughs> like a scary thing to do. I wouldn't be comfortable with it, but that's not to say that it's not a good strategy if you're good at what you do.
0: To me, it's just defense versus offense. If you want to go extreme offense, then sure. Like what, like what Frank's saying, is like you go all in on the business, whether it's your own or if you really have faith in it. <laughs> private equity might be an interesting example, but often they will diversify a bunch, uh, like private equity, venture capital type deals, where they'll have a portfolio of a bunch of different startups and hope that one takes off. Um, so mm-hmm. it it, it seems it's extreme to do you know the one to three position deal. Uh, a lot of studies show that you know the the risk of uh, of the the whatever the, the risk that's negated by diversifying often is achieved at something like twenty holdings. Uh, which if you get up to that, you're probably just about as good as a as a well-diversified fund, as long as it's not all in the same exact sector or something like that. So, you know, it's like, if you can get up to that point, you're probably getting all the benefits of diversification anyways. Um, but maybe you still lose some of that, that offensive reach that having a super concentrated one to two, three holding portfolio would have.
3: You know, I, I recall Charlie Munger ran his own numbers on that back when he was you know in law school yeah it's debatable for sure up with three as it it might be (laughs) yeah it'd be interesting to read the studies yeah
4: i think it's perfectly fine having just like one to four holdings
3: it's
0: fine you just got to be ready for some serious volatility is all which um if you're investing for the long game anyways you probably should be (laughs) so i personally
1: I only have five positions. I don't like, I'm talking like three is a bad idea, but I only have five.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> right. It takes well, a while to get young to young. those 20. Yeah, that's the that's that's difference. Young. It's like it might take 10 years to get to 20 positions if you're doing the punch card approach, um, where it's real slow, very selective. Um, but eventually, you get to those 20 punches or however many it is, whatever arbitrary number we decide to pick. And, yeah, back and I, I
2: think it. <clears throat> And I think it depends on what the positions are as well. Like Charlie Munger today still tells everyone he has three positions, but he doesn't really. Like he's got he's got Berkshire, which owns like ninety subsidiaries plus the stock portfolio, and then he's got Lelo's fund, which I don't know how concentrated Lee is, but let's say he's probably got at least another five positions in there. Yeah, And then he's got Costco, which is the one business, right? So yeah, he's it, it's kind of cheating. It depends what's <laughs> in the three, yeah. I
0: I, I, like, I found that funny when he's like, oh yeah, I'm super concentrated in Berkshire. Well, it's like, I mean, that's, that's a bunch of businesses, but okay. <laughs> but it still is relatively concentrated compared to like a broad index fund, which is incredibly diversified. We got a question yeah, here I mean, from, you know, from SC358. Oh, yeah. Um. Even
4: with respect to this, so with, I think one of the mistakes that I'll have 10 years out is probably selling out of GameStop. Because if I was just in that one business and holding it, I think my portfolio would have done better. Like, as opposed to every other investment that I've got, even if that was not there and this was like 99% of my portfolio, I think I'd do okay. I know it's very controversial to say right now, but go, go deeper, out,
0: go deeper. Karan. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I mean, it's, it would still be like what a 20 X at current levels. And if I'm just holding it for the next 10 years, I mean. So still, what you're saying is
0: you don't see this no. spike as temporary at all. The pump, I don't, <laughs> I don't
4: actually think the business does have a future and I think it can do well, I think it can do really well. I think I'm going to regret selling out, even though I sold out, the price that I sold out at made sense. So I sold out at like 400-ish, 450. Gosh. Goodness,
1: goodness. it was,
3: it was, a, it, it was 100x at that point, right, Karan, for you?
4: Yeah, that's what. I saw it as 100x, and I'm like, I'm out. I'll take the money. Thank you. Um,
3: <laughs> you need that, that shoots, shoots the bill. I, think,
4: I think in like 10 years, I'm going to be like, oh, that was a big mistake. Like, I should not have sold out.
0: Of it. So you're... So you're- you you have a strong hunch that there's going to be a serious turnaround, is what you're really saying.
4: I bought back in at fifty, like fifty dollars, so around a three point seven billion valuation, and then I sold out again when it hit like three hundred. <laughs> you got it, the second <laughs> so, bite at the apple. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is, ridiculous. and that was again within like a month. So I should not have sold out. Like I think that was a
0: uh,
3: you're mistake. doing all right. I didn't right, have though. the diamond hands. You,
0: no, diamond hands. but you, but <laughs> yeah. you put it into other positions that I would think are. More undervalued, I'd imagine, than GameStop at that price. Or do you disagree? Yeah. I mean, I, again, right
4: now it makes sense, but I think years out, I'm going to be like, oh, I shouldn't have sold out of it and should mm-hmm. just. So, yeah, being in one company is fine. Like, and especially if you've got such a huge margin of safety. I mean, buying the company at 250, 300 million. Today, it's sitting at around $10 billion, you know? The so buy at, price was so good, yeah. At, right.
3: what, at what price for GameStop do you push the chips back in?
4: Sub $5 billion, like around okay. 3 three billion. All right. I don't think it's ever going to get back there. Yeah. I hope it does, but
0: I don't think Hot, so. hot takes from Quran. There you go. <laughs> we got our, we got yeah. That was great. Right we got our short.
3: <laughs>
2: We, yeah, what I'm st- hearing is that what I'm hearing is that um, GameStop is Crystal 2.0, and we're currently in 2005. Is that, <laughs> is that sound about right? Kira I mean,
4: it's not it's not a business that an idiot could run, right? You've got a very good chairman of the board. Um, you mean to do the yeah.
0: turnaround? Then.
4: Yeah. I mean, in June, I think he'll announce what exactly his plan is moving forward. But you see the people he's hiring right now. So he's gotten people from Amazon. He's gotten people from Chewy. The company's hired its first CTO. Like, these are not small changes, right? And especially, again, it was the buy price. The buy price is was amazing. Like, it was a huge margin of safety. Mm. So, I don't know. Yeah. Sorry, right Jack, now, should, I'm very happy a... with it.
0: But... Yours out. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, we've documented this, so you can uh, <laughs> <That's> right, <laughs> come back no to this video. There's, there's no ten, hiding. Yeah, it's public. Yeah. Everyone, hold a Quran to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's actually get to some of these questions now. SC three five eight wants to know, Frank, if you could clarify some 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 of your Red Bubble decisions, since you just recently made it. Um, and he's talking about the flywheel concept here. Did you talk about how you think it's competitive versus um, other other uh, competitors in the space? Since it does seem like it is a fairly low barrier to entry, Redbubble. Maybe you could explain the business a little bit more.
1: Yeah, so I'll break it down a little bit. So SC is actually my Discord. So we talk about this, we go back and forth about this on that Discord. So the flywheel effect is essentially the business has three parts. They have their customers, they have their artists, and they have a fulfillment and operations team. If you invest in any aspect of those three, the theory is that it's a flywheel effect. If one grows, the other two grow. Um, that's the flywheel effect. But I think the competitive advantage is more so the fulfillment and operations side of the business. Most online marketplaces don't have fulfillment and operations teams. So as an artist, you, could, you don't have to actually do anything. You create the art and you put it on there. You don't have to make a product. So... Your margins are very different. Your amount of effort you have to put in is very different. There are other websites doing the same print-on-demand service. Um, So the competitive advantage over those is their branding and their popularity at the moment, I guess. There's no other public company that does exactly what Redbubble does. And of the other online marketplaces, no one has that fulfillment and operations aspect of the business. So they suffer in their gross margins because of that. But that's the appeal to artists and convenience for users. And it adds to that flywheel effect, which is definitely part of their competitive advantage as well. And then the other aspect is, I'm sure Brad would have heard about it too in that interview with Andrew Rosenblum mm-hmm. that we shared earlier. He talked about allowing the consumer, this approach is from, to be individual. They can choose what they have on their product. You don't have to go to the supermarket and hope there's something you like or to the shopping malls or whatever, to find a shirt or a painting or whatever it is that you like. You can customize it yourself. It's an interest-based um, service, I guess. So it's like it's like the reason I like Twitter is it's interest-driven, which I think is a competitive advantage just in itself. But, um, yeah, that's how I'm thinking about the competitive advantages. There's a lot, a lot of other things I like about the business as well. Um, I bought in knowing that there was an announcement coming out and the announcement turned out not to be great, and it dropped 23% on the day. So I doubled down on my position and averaged. Um, so I'm down about 10% at the moment, roughly, on my position. But long term, I'm fairly comfortable with Redbubble. And, of course, that's not financial advice. That's just what I'm doing. Don't listen to me.
3: And I really like the aspect where the artist, right? The artist typically gets, what is it, 20%, Redbubble gets 30 and then the fulfillment gets 50 But as the artist, you get to set the price. So if if you want something to be more expensive, you get get a bigger cut. So I think that's kind of a cool thing for, for artists to also have more say over the business decisions.
1: Yeah, definitely. So the main comparison that people use for Redbubble is Etsy. But for that reason, Brad just explained, I don't think they're fair to compare at all because Etsy actually have to produce a product and sell it. These right. artists just create their art and set their margins and do whatever they want. So, Karan, yeah, that's
3: you've got to make all kinds of products <laughs> from this. I want my shower curtains to say shameless cloners.
1: Quran <laughs> could have put that on yeah,
3: Redbubble,
4: Teespring. actually. Teespring yeah. is a competitor, right, for Redbubble?
0: Yeah, yeah that, yeah, that spreadsheet I think is another uh, Printify the, all the all the Shopify plugin. Uh, yeah. There are. Do a you number. see the
4: margins compressing for Redbubble because of all short, the competition?
1: Short term, that's what the announcement was about. Short term, they have said their EBITDA margin will go down. It's about ten percent. It'll drop off to about five or mid single digits, is what they said. Um, but they said by two thousand and twenty four, it should be. Closer to the fifteen percent mark, or between it, ten and fifteen. So, is that because of
0: lo- logistical concerns right now, it, especially is is a lot of their manufacturing out of China or anything like that?
1: Uh, no. So the main reason they're doing that is they just got a huge spike of new users, obviously with COVID and the shutdown. So a lot of people went to their service. Gotcha. So they're trying to reinvest um, into retaining those, like the retention of their customers. I see, and just the overall user understanding of their platform. Um, but
0: well, Almost an embarrassment of riches then.
1: <laughs> so I, I don't know if it's a good thing. It, it, it's bad short term. Their Earnings per share is going to drop off and Australian shareholders and most shareholders around the world will react to that and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. But as a long-term investor, when I'm reading this, um, it's a CEO letter he put out, shareholder letter, And it doesn't seem concerning because all the long-term things he talks about seems great. But because we're in a short-term driven market, I guess it's going to look bad for a couple of years maybe.
0: Well, moving on to another one, Uh, someone's asking us about A2M. Uh, What do you guys think? I know we got a a couple of A2M, uh, uh, I'll say experts here. (laughs) So so, uh,
1: what do you guys think?
2: Uh, yeah, I can go first if you like. I'm assuming you're saying Frank's the other the other person. You can fall room. on that <laughs> knife, Tom.
1: That that one's yeah. tough.
2: <laughs> yeah. So this is this is the A2 Milk Company, um, like absolute market darling of New Zealand for the last decade and up. Like I don't know, six thousand percent or something in the last ten years, um, and it's down like sixty five percent from the peak. Maybe this is these are ballpark numbers. So. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of concerns about A2 having slower growth. They've got um, a few issues in what they refer to as their Daigo channel, which is basically like a reseller market. Uh, a lot of it's in Australia. So they have uh, basically people go into stores in Australia and then resell that product to China. And they're sort of running these little businesses, um, kind of running that model uh it's a hard one like like frank said i think there's a lot of new competition coming in so they're probably likely to lose some of the premium pricing that they have but at the same time the stock's down so much that it implies a much lower growth rate than what they've achieved in the past they've been growing it i I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head but probably mid 20 per cent per year compounded for a very very long time and i think by my maths the the price implies roughly like a 10 percent growth rate moving forward so uh it's not a no-brainer but it's i don't quite know which way i which way i lean on this one it's compelling so, but not not incredible
3: it's, it's kinda, a f- it's a 14 bagger over the last six years it looks like is Even that after the, after the drawdown agent. sorry
1: is that after the drawdown is,
3: yes that's including the drawdown yeah
4: mm. what about the management so- i mean Oh, is it the same so the, person who's been running it?
3: Yeah. That's, no, the, well,
2: the, management that that's the other
1: concern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, there's been some concerns around the management team. I, I don't follow it too closely. I've valued it and it definitely seems cheap. The quality was great. It's just going to determine if the quality is still there. But a lot of the management team left. There's a new management team that's in over the past maybe six months or so, maybe a bit longer time, I'm not sure. Uh, one month? Yeah, there you go. Even newer than I thought. But... um. The, the old management they did great for the business but then there was a lot of they sold out of their shares there was a big sell-off from their insiders they kind of had inside information i guess you could say they got mm. out looked bad on them the share price fell kept falling
2: yeah i mean the the short answer to this question is like if the business returns to anywhere near close to the growth rates they achieved in the past it'll be a home run and if it doesn't it'll flop and i don't quite know what's going to happen it's a really hard one to to analyze the business um here so um i actually have a small very small position in a2 milk it's sort of like i don't really ever make speculative investments but this is probably the the one of example of that that i've got in my portfolio so uh yeah i'll be following it closely see see how this one plays out you you
0: got you got to keep the gambling bug satisfied at least a little bit (laughs) right can you buy the product (laughs) Have you, have you had A2 well,
3: milk? I, I was going to ask, Tom, is A2 milk your post-deadlift drink of choice? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, it's not. There is, you can buy, like, liquid A2 milk. So for anyone that doesn't know, A2, it refers to, like, a protein that's in cow's milk. So um, tr- most cows produce a combination of A1 and A2 proteins and A2 producing cows produce only the A2 protein. So um, this, um, I've always been actually quite sceptical on the science behind the potential health benefits of A2 milk. There's more supporting evidence coming out for that over time, but um, that's sort of one of their main selling points that it's a bit a little bit easier on the stomach. And a lot of their product goes into things like infant formula, for example, and, um, so yeah, I'm not having a lot of infant formula after the gym, but <laughs> I
1: actually do use the infant formula. It's the formula I I... we use here at home and we actually have been struggling to get it. So since they've had these distribution concerns, um, at least where I live, uh, Woolworths, which is one of the biggest supermarkets here in Australia, or it's the biggest, um, they haven't had it on their shelves for the past few months. So from a branding perspective, it's probably going to hurt here in Australia at least, Um We've been going to like small little chemists just to be able to get the product just to remain consistent. But it's definitely going to hurt moving forward because a lot of people would have just stopped using the product because they can't get it. Mm. It's a good sign that you still want it. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Sticky. sticky. Still getting it. We go out of our way. So they're doing something great.
0: How about I this question? Thoughts on Chinese companies and the risk that their financial numbers could be manipulated with very little oversight, or perhaps too much oversight from from auditors um, or or uh, party officials? Um, since uh, a lot of Chinese firms have uh, the 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 party, the regime there has not allowed Western auditors to audit firms in in the way that you would in a lot of in like the, the U.S. markets, for example which is obviously a huge red flag. And um, there's been examples of huge fraud, like with Luckin Coffee, for example. That was a huge disaster fairly recently. So it just, it, it raises some red flags. So what are your guys' thoughts on that? I'm fairly skeptical whenever I'm looking at any Chinese company because of that, just hard to know what's true. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of great gems, but guys like Charlie Munger are going into to, to Alibaba. So like there's something there. But uh, What are your guys'
1: thoughts? I can I can jump in <laughs> if you want. I don't have too many thoughts. I like the idea of having some exposure to the Chinese market. And I have all the same concerns that you're talking about. But I'm, I don't know. I don't know if I think, is it propaganda? Is that why we've been, is that why we if, think it's so risky? Like, obviously there's some truth to it, but do we think it's worse than it actually is?
0: Probably. But it, the hard part is just determining what is true and what isn't. It's like, I'm sure there's a lot of truth, but what's that? Ten percent, five percent, whatever it is—that's not true. That you happen to be investing in, you know, that—that's what—that's what's hard. Um, mm. and, and I don't know what needs to be done to actually like to solve that. At least in the from the U.S.-China relationships are are dodgy at the moment. So, and, and I know there's been threats from our Congress, for example, to delist Chinese companies on a broad scale if they don't cooperate with U.S. auditor standards. I don't know if that's what needs to happen to renew that confidence. I, I don't know if it's propaganda per se, but there's definitely a lot of fear um, that might be unreasonable. So I, I don't know. It's hard to say.
3: Yeah. It was interesting to to listen to Li Lu's last talk at Columbia. He he was talking about how this shift from investing in the U S to investing with China, so much of the learning that needed to happen for him was, that, that interface between the government in China and and the investing scene in in China so it, it's just it's so different from the US and I think because it's so different it's easy to you know just point you know call fraud on it uh, before really understanding the nuances of you know w- what's involved uh, in that interface so. That's, that was that was intriguing to me, hearing him talk about can, that.
4: I think you can just buy Daily Journal and you'll have like exposure to BYD and Alibaba. You're good. Like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. practically any emerging market fund will have huge exposure to China yeah. as well. So like, if you want to maybe diversify that sort of risk, if you're afraid of fraud, but still want exposure to China, then that could be a decent way. Not, not investment advice, of course, but just an idea.
3: Um, Karan, did you do a valuation on, on DJO recently?
1: No, I haven't looked
3: into it. Okay. I think you did Frank or or no.
1: I've ran some numbers pretty quickly and I made a mistake on it, which Tom actually corrected me on, but they're cheap, I guess. But I look at the portfolio and I'm a bit like, I don't know if I want to own that. I like Barber kind of, but (laughs) overall, I I don't know. I'm not too interested. And the main reason I am is Charlie Munger. And in all honesty, he's not going to be there much longer
2: yeah i did a um i did a video on daily journal a daily journal valuation late last year i think it was um so people go check that out that out if they want the part of that valuation that would need updating though is the stock portfolio because obviously that moves around quite a bit there's a really good write-up if people are interested that was done by uh, matthew peterson on daily journal Mm -hmm. if you just google like matthew peterson djco write-up or presentation or something like that you should get the pdf um that was probably done two or three years ago so the numbers will need a bit of updating but um the the method evaluation still stands so it's pretty interesting business they've got obviously the big stock portfolio they've got the dying newspaper business which will Mm -hmm. continue to die and then they've got this um courthouse software which um i don't know if you're maybe ever going to come across that in your um new career jack but if you do let us know (laughs)
0: it's probably unlikely everything's very state-to-state and i don't think they're doing anything in illinois um but yeah i will i was i'm i'm waiting for it (laughs) um well if you
2: if you if you come and be a lawyer in Australia, um, I think yeah. Australia, the Australian government's a pretty pretty big customer of the Daily <laughs> Journal. So
0: fantastic! I'll let you know when I, <laughs> when I move everything <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and learn a whole new legal system. There you um, go. <laughs> um, let, let's wrap up with this question, guys. This cigar butt versus Wonderful Business. I guess <laughs> pros cons, one or the other, both. Like you know, what, what are your thoughts on invest focusing on the cigar butt style investment? or a wonderful business, I guess we should
3: explain what a cigar butt investment is first. Um. This is where Karan and I get into like a brawl, right? <laughs> Why don't you Brad, guys you lead go. it off then? You go. <laughs> you walked into go that, Brad. I sure did. Uh, what is a cigar butt? So the idea with a cigar butt, I think uh, it's originally from Benjamin Graham, right? It's this idea yep. that you know the business; it's on its last leg. There's one puff left, um, where you know, you're buying it for less than liquidation value, effectively. Um, so you're getting it at a deep value to you know what what the assets are worth at least on the books. Uh, and then the the what was the other one? The um, great business, right? Where you know you put your money in, and the business does the work of compounding your money year after year because it's got this you know, high rate of return, uh, high you know, return on invested capital. It's got a great moat. Uh, you don't need to touch it. You don't need to pull it out, find new dollar bills for 50 cents, any of that. So that's, that's kind of how I see the differences. Uh, and I assume the question is which one, right? Wh- which, which approach are we if, more- If there's a preference at all. Yeah, if there's a preference. <laughs> I think
4: that, you know, if you're buying into a cigar butt and it becomes a wonderful business, that's the best investment. Oh yes. Like, first the margin of safety is in the price. <laughs> <laughs> no, first the margin of safety is in the price, then the margin of safety is in the quality of the business. Mm-hmm. Right. That's ideal. I mean, so you start off with cigar butts is what I'm trying to say. And then if you get lucky, great. Otherwise, you still get the last puff,
2: you know. When, when I was looking I, imagine, at- imagine buying Berkshire in 1960. <laughs> yeah. Cigar
4: yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It
0: and, uh, and that didn't work out well for
4: anyone who copied Buffer.
0: <laughs> going going for more like asset plays, I think it's just easier to understand. It's very difficult to pick what the great business is, but it's pretty easy to read a balance sheet as long as there's not a bunch of fraud on it. Um I'm not saying that all balance sheets are easy to read, but you could usually tell like is this company highly indebted? Is there a value here? Um, Do they have a bunch of real estate that might not be being shown? Do they have a bunch of cash that outweighs all their debt? Like those are pretty nice, easier things to understand as opposed to figuring out, all right, what's the next Amazon or what's the next whatever? That's super difficult to do, um, at least reliably. You could do it. But um, I just think it's kind of the Karan's point, the finding a cigar, butt, it could still turn into a great business but at least you have some price insulation or protection, ideally, if if you get it at a really good price. Um, I just think it's it's probably more palatable when you're just starting out. Um, and maybe as you get used to looking at a bunch of different companies, you might be better at identifying what a great business really is. Um, so it, it, it's a mixed bag for sure, but uh, it, I guess it sort of depends on what stage you are in investing.
1: I think the way I think about it is Why not have both? Like, why do you have to limit yourself to one type or the other? So most of my business is probably made of, I guess you'd call it the wonderful type business, but I certainly want to incorporate some deeper value plays. And there's big investors investors that um, are successful with either strategy. You have Michael Burry, who runs a cigar butt-ish type strategy. And then you have someone like Chuck Ackray or almost anyone we mentioned that has the wonderful business strategy. I don't think you have to choose between either. Depending yeah. on your strategy, you can you can do either one, you can do both, and as long as you do it well, you're gonna see great returns. They're both ways to outperform the market if you do it right.
0: Inherently what you're doing is you're buying you're buying something below its intrinsic value, which is the heart of value investing. It's just is it is it because you're getting like the asset value now or is it because the assets are gonna grow in the future? It's it's two sides of the same coin. Really. Um, you're trying to get something for cheaper than what it's, it's intrinsically fundamentally worth. So
3: I want to throw this out there too. So one of Pabri's commandments, right? Thou shall have singular focus.
0: I'm wondering (laughs) if
3: if this goes against that at all, looking for cigar butts and the great businesses, is it trying to do too much? Are are you going to buy a cigar butt and forget? Oh yeah. Maybe I should be looking for the long-term compounder qualities in this. Or am I just saying when it hits intrinsic value, I'm out. I I think it's probably tricky to juggle both at the same time. I think in any
1: event... Go ahead, Frank. ProBribe really kind of switched from one strategy to the other. I guess that's what he's transitioning Mm -hmm. from right now. So I guess he's sticking true to that, doing one or the other. But I don't think he would be opposed to buying a cigar butt still. I know he says he's making this transition to long-term compounder type positions, but I don't know. I think SRG is still kind of a cigar butt-like position. It's an asset play essentially, so he still holds that. Um, I'm yet to see any of these real compounder positions. I guess there's a couple in there you could class as that. Um, but, yeah, I think either or other fine. Maybe you should focus on one more than the other if, depending on the amount of time I guess you have to invest but yeah.
0: I think that's a great way to wrap up unless everyone has any final thoughts. Um, since we're over our hour that we try to aim for um, every single week. So if you guys tune in and be sure to subscribe, if you enjoyed this conversation, since we'll be having many more of them in the future um, and join that discord, like I mentioned earlier, it's in the description below. I also put it in the chat at some point. So check that out and uh, smash that like button. Cause that would help us too. And, uh, maybe one day, like we were saying, we could get one of these great investors on board and to uh, to chat with us. That Should we give
3: a shout out to the Shorts channel? Is that a separate channel, Jack? Or yeah. What, uh, we
0: if you guys want, we started a new channel um, that's linked to this one. It's called Punch Card Clips. So it'll just be shorter clips if you guys um, uh, maybe don't have time to watch the entire hour or whatever at that moment um, or just want to see some of the highlights from, from the the episodes. We do have punch card clips if you guys want to check that out as well um but otherwise everything's all, all the main content is going to be on this channel so uh, definitely stick around if you want to see the whole conversation here um but otherwise guys uh looking forward to next week when, when we do it again all right see you guys Sounds good all right. see, see ya you. thanks everyone
4: all right take it